Welcome back, everyone, to this edition of Drunk Bible Study Bonus. It is bonus time. And this was a weird one again, as always, because we're in Isaiah. Maybe a little bit more comprehensible, like understandable than in weeks past, but still, still we were like, what's going on here? I don't know. There's animals, there's boats, there's the rock, and then there's Lilith. Wow. Um... Yeah, so this actually in Isaiah 34, 14, it looks like from the Wikipedia article on Lilith, this is the time when Lilith is spoken about in the Bible. And that's the only time. The one and only. At least in the Hebrew Bible. Huh, okay. So yes, I didn't see anything on her later on either, like in the Christian Bible at all. So, okay. so I think probably in both Christian and Hebrew Bible, like this is it. This is the one mention. Yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised because, I mean, I grew up not knowing absolutely anything about Lilith or ever hearing that Same. Lilith was a thing until me, yeah. much later. I mean, I think, of course, the Christian church yes. has some incentive to not want to talk about Lilith necessarily. But exactly, yeah, it's not like she's name dropped a bunch. And it, it actually says the Isaiah 3414 Lilith reference does not appear in most common Bible translations, such as the right. KGV and the NIV. Because we call it the night monster. Right. Yes. Commentators and interpreters often envision the figure of Lilith as a dangerous demon of the night who is sexually wanton and who steals babies in the darkness. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> pretty awesome. Um, yeah. So the big thing about Lilith is that, yes, she is apparently Adam's first wife and she was created at the same time as Adam and from the same clay as Adam. Now, is this based on what, like rabbinical commentary or? Yes, it says in some Jewish folklore, such as the satiric alphabet of Sikora. Yeah, she appears as as Adam's first wife. And it says that the legend of Lilith developed extensively during the Middle Ages uh, with, Hmm. yeah, Agda, Zohar, and the Jewish mysticism. So, yeah, it says, for example, the 11th century writings of Isaac ben Jacob ha-Cohen, Lilith left Adam after she refused to become subservient to him and would not return to the Garden of Eden after she had coupled with the archangel Samuel. Whoa, okay, all right. Oh, I, awesome, okay. 100% on Lilith's team. No, totally, yeah. So, like, she was not... The way that my partner describes Lilith is he was like, yeah, she wanted to be on top and Adam wasn't all about that. And so she was like, oh, fine, like, I'm going like to go be with some... D- yeah, literally, literally subservient. About being on top. Yes, oh, exactly. Wow. And so she like bounced huh. and went and had sex with some demons instead. And apparently, according to some places, <laughs> stole some babies. Um, <laughs> there's a ton of different... not photos but that would be funny and weird but uh like different paintings and statues and things of Lilith all over the place she's very very like ripe for this kind of thing for like people Mm. to draw and and make beautiful artwork about her but as for Sarah McLaughlin to make the Lilith festival oh or Lilith fair I didn't know Lilith oh yeah, Fair, Lilith yeah. Fair. Yeah. And, and as Emily and I talked about in between the episode and the bonus about how supernatural Lilith is one of yes. the characters for many seasons on that show. Yeah, but I just want to mention the most, and I mentioned this on the show, but the most striking portrayal and where I first heard about Lilith well before this show happened is this unbelievable, it really is unbelievable statue in the, um, not Museum of Modern Art, yes, 
at the Met, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. It is uh, by Kiki Smith, and it looks like, when was it done? I think in 94. Look at it, because, uh, and I'll post it in Drunk Bible Study Fans and Fellowship. It's unbelievable. It's a life-size cast bronze statue of a woman, and it's on the wall, and she's upside down, like she's in kind of this like, demonic she's, crouch Yeah, posture. she's kind of like Spider-Manning exactly. on the wall. Huh. But you, if you look at her as you're coming down the stairs, she has these pierced blue eyes and she's just staring at you and it's it's so incredible i was so struck by it but it's also like fairly scary to look at but yeah it was it was done i guess with an actual an actual woman like was cast in bronze and so it is an actual woman's figure but it's really extraordinary so this is this artist's most widely known piece famous for its confrontational gaze and unapologetic nakedness and it's hyper realistic modeled precisely off of a real woman's body making a statement about perfection she's not ideal by the standards of mainstream media but as a woman directly formed by god's own hands not even indirectly through a predecessor's rib so mm. that's really cool i see yeah that yeah. is cool that was the thing when i looked up the statue that was the thing that really struck me about it is i think that in classical art we're really used in classical sculpture especially really used to seeing you know like greek sculpture where it's like literal perfection yeah absolutely. of a woman's body you know and, and you see and everything you see everything and there's there's no sense of even like in the fact that with this sculpture it's like you even get a sense of like gravity like pulling on yeah. her body and her breasts and like all mm. these things and it is really compelling piece of art Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of unease to it, but it, but it talks about, I guess, this um, Kiki Smith, who is the woman who did this piece of artwork, uh, does a lot of things about feminism, does a lot of art regarding like feminism and uh, the feminist perspective. And that's really cool. But again, I think, yeah, this is so striking because Lilith is sort of this feminist icon in many ways, like not being subservient to men. So yeah, it's true. If you ever, you dear listener, ever get a chance to go see the piece, I highly recommend it because it is truly extraordinary. All right, kids. Listen, ancient waterways, right? I love them. <laughs> do you? you love them? Oh, yeah, Who I guess doesn't? you do. You yeah. talk about them. I do. It's you the do weird thing where it's just like so weirdly compelling to me and I have no idea why. Okay, so... <laughs> I know we were going to call this bit drunk galleon study. I didn't really actually look up galleons. I was more looking up the Jordan River and trying to figure out, would that be navigable to Jerusalem? Would it make sense that someone would send some like galleys down that river? And so, first of all, we know the Jordan River is very important. It gets mentioned a lot in the Bible. Uh, I looked it up on Google Maps. The oh. Jordan River is at least a three-hour drive away from the city of Jerusalem. Well, at least. And that's with a, a, a vehicle. Yeah. They, you know? They probably couldn't get there very easily then. And and that brought back memories of when I was in Jerusalem. I was like, oh, right. I had this thought of, like, it could be cool to go see the Jordan River. And then mm. I was like, oh, it's a three-hour drive away. And I have no way of getting there unless I, like, book a tour bus or whatever. And I was like, F that. I'm not yeah. going to do that. I can... See the Jordan River another day when Drunk Bible Study does their tour of the Holy Land. Cool. So we can come to the conclusion that the Jordan River is not the main water source for Jerusalem. But as you pointed out, Jace, it's like they're in the middle of the desert. It's a city. They need to have some kind of water source. There's no way yeah, that they, they don't. they got to have some kind of water. Yeah. And I have the answer for you. Oh. Okay. It's the Gihon Spring. Hmm. Now. Now, a spring okay. does not sound like 
a river. Exactly. Exactly. It's <laughs> no, not, it's not a navigable river by any means. No one is putting a boat inside a spring. They're not. Now, we've encountered the Gihon Spring before because this was Hezekiah's aqueduct that I looked up and got so excited about is mm. he constructed this aqueduct to be able to get water more efficiently from the spring, essentially. Okay. Um, and now it's interesting, this spring is what's known as a siphon spring, where it's actually the origin of it is like an inner cave, like it's actually buried underground. Whoa. And so what would happen is like the cave would fill up and then there would be like this siphon channel, this this organic natural siphon channel that would then gush out water in an area that was close to where they eventually, you know, built Jerusalem. And then it would stop because, uh-huh. you know, the cave would empty. And then you'd have to wait again for the cave to fill up and then it would gush again. And so it was a spring that was kind of seasonal, essentially, oh. where it would oh. only gush. But that also doesn't sound like a good thing. If it's only seasonal, they need well, it all the time. Yeah. So what they did is they built what's known as the Pool of Siloam which is going to become more relevant later. So they built this pool, almost kind of like a reservoir to save some of that spring water for the times when it wasn't gushing, essentially. Um, And it's interesting, like I read these interviews with this, um, um, a geography teacher specifically talks about like Middle Eastern geography and Jerusalem geography and talking about how like the Gihon Spring is literally your only option at that time for irrigating your city. Like that is the only water source. Like hmm. there's there basically no alternative there. But with the combination of having the spring plus it being a city on a hill where it's easy to defend that that's what makes it a popular place to build a city, essentially, like a really good place for a city in the desert. And now the funny part of this is that um, over the course of history, there's been a bunch of man-made channels and aqueducts constructed to be able to, you know, channel water from this spring. And one of them was called um, Warren's Shaft. (laughs) That's good. I bet it was. <laughs> He's named after Warren, who was like a British archaeologist in like the 1800s. And so, of course, he was the British white guy who swooped in. And so we name it after him. But after that's his just chef. His yeah. chef. Yeah. Yeah. His chef. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that was, that was just you. funny to me. Um, good. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, that's what I can tell you about water sources in Jerusalem. It's so exciting. Isn't it just ancient waterways? Aren't they so cool? Are they just so cool? Or, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. Were you not going to tell us anything about uh, galleons, though? Nothing at all? Oh, no. Nah. As soon as I determined <laughs> that, like, there's no way for a galleon to actually get to Jerusalem, I, I didn't care then anymore. Then you abandoned that. Okay. <laughs> and then I was Got much it. more sucked in by my love of ancient You're waterways. Like, We're not doing this. Okay. okay. Wow. Cool. Well, Got it. for listeners who really came here for galleon information you're gonna have to wait for maybe another bonus episode when there is a waterway that could support a galleon at some point i guess all right i would love to talk to you about the rock and about what the rock is cooking yes yes and about can you suplexes. smell what the rock is cooking can you smell what the rock is cooking so yes i, I can't but i want to but i would like to as well if you at the moment of recording this if you google what is the rock cooking the answer that Google will give you is pancakes. However, <laughs> that has nothing to do with anything. That is just a random article that was about a tweet from The Rock where he was making pancakes. It has nothing to do with anything. So just ignore that. Do you that. know pancakes is like one of my favorite words in Spanish? Do you know what it is? What is it? No. It's pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. 
So we all like run around on brunch days at work and we're like, I need some pancakes. So great. Pancakes. That's pretty good. That's good. Okay. That is good. So, so for those of you, first of all, just to start out, for those of you who are unfamiliar with The Rock's catchphrase, can you smell what The Rock is cooking? Uh, that that is it. We messed it up. I messed it up in the episode because I couldn't remember what it was. But it's can you smell what the rock is cooking? And specifically, the smell has like a very held L. Okay. Possibly okay, so even he's, with so he's like pumping up the crowd. Where he's like, can you smell? Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. So so just just so you can get a, a sense of it, I'm gonna I'm gonna play you an example here. And he would say that himself? Yes, that was him saying that. That was okay. Dwayne oh, okay. The Rock Johnson saying, can you smell Okay. The Rock is cooking? Okay. That was his catchphrase. And it's never been revealed what The Rock is cooking. But that's it. Is. He, <laughs> he had another sort of catchphrase at some point, I think was know your role. But that I don't know as much about. Um, but The Rock did do suplexes and i just want to tell you what a suplex is just briefly and so here's the the definition of a suplex and it's a little hard to understand from this definition it is a move in wrestling in in like pro wrestling not like real olympic wrestling that involves lifting the opponent and then bridging or rolling so either like bridging you know arching your back backwards or rolling forwards to slam the opponent onto their back. So the like classic way you've probably seen this in, it happens a lot in video games too, mm. but where it's like two people are facing each other and you imagine one gets the other person's to like bend at the waist, like bend forward at the waist, like they're bowing. Okay. Usually in wrestling, it's like they knee them in the stomach or punch them in the right. stomach or and something. And then what, and they you go, like pick Ugh. them up and... And then you you hook your arm like around their head, kind of like an upside down headlock. And then you lift them up so their body is like up vertical with their feet toward the ceiling and you're standing up. And then you fall backwards and they fall onto their back. That's like the classic suplex. And there's a zillion variations on this where you grab them facing the same direction and you roll or you flip or you do all sorts of things. But that's the basic move. It's it's like a cool, very impressive athletic move for both people involved in the suplex. Jeez, I mean. And so it's, you know, it's a big hit. It's a big hit for wrestling fans. All of the rest of guys. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds painful. <laughs> but I'm glad people are well, excited about it. That's the whole thing about pro wrestling though, is that it's controlled. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Is like you know, like stunt fighting or like stage fighting is that Mm-hmm. The whole point of it is to make it look painful, but it actually not be painful. You know, I beg right. to differ because of the movie The Wrestler. He like does not have a good time well, in that film. Sure, sure, but I mean, the ideal is that this is something that yeah. that is not going to be hurting you. You're not actually getting the poop kicked out of you. Okay, you're just right. pretending that the poop's getting kicked out of you. Not that it has no impact on your body whatsoever. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Same thing with stunt yes. fighting. Right. So yeah, I mean it's the same thing like stunt actors who work in movies and TV, a lot of them later in life do suffer a lot of like ill consequences yeah. from just putting their body through so much. It's 
you know, and that's true of any like very physically demanding job. Yeah. You know, athletes, athletes run into that as well. Um, but yeah, pro wrestlers, it is an issue that there's, I remember reading an article years ago about pro wrestlers who, you know, after your career ends, you're pretty effed. Now you've kind of, well, you've just got some problems and maybe don't have like great retirement benefits as part of that. Yeah. Because it's kind of a gig John based Oliver, economy. Yeah. John Oliver did a yeah. whole expose on that about yeah. how, yeah, there's not a lot of good benefits or health insurance support even or anything right. like that. Yeah. yeah. That's tough. I mean, well, sure. I read about it in Vice Magazine like way before John Oliver had a show, but whatever. Oh, that's okay. Cool. All right. Okay. okay. Got it. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's so kind of like how you and I, Jace, how we were into like butterfly PT in Laos before like yeah. Americans were into it, you know, and like it was the cool thing and yeah, okay. something like that. And we're just like wow. so much cooler than everybody. Can we talk about The Rock a little bit more though? Please. Yeah, okay, yeah. So here's what I learned. So I've never been someone who follows pro wrestling. I've watched it from time to time for amusement, but it's not something I've ever like been into or followed. So... I was learning a little bit here about Dwayne The Rock Johnson and his career in wrestling, in pro wrestling, was mostly from like 96 to 2002. That was kind of his heyday. He made some guest appearances after that, but basically around that point is when he started moving into like, he was the Scorpion King and then he was a movie actor and kind of moved out of wrestling. Yeah. Again, probably a good move for him. He's one of the highest grossing film actors in the world. So, you know, it's worked out pretty well for him. Wow. Uh, but what was interesting, what I did not realize is that, so, you know, in, in pro wrestling, there's kind of this whole lore, right? There's alliances that are made between different people. There's factions against each other. It's all there's storytelling like, that it's happens. It's all storytelling, right? Huh. It's, it's this very athletic storytelling uh, and very over the top, very caricature right? Everyone's got to have a athletic theater. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So when The Rock started out, he was kind of part of a group of I guess we'll call them like semi-good guys (laughs) but at one point in the first few years he sort of like broke bad as it were (laughs) and um because he was someone who like fans would boo at various points early on like that was his character and at one point he like joins this sort of rebel faction or whatever (laughs) trying to remember what they're what they're called uh, the, the names of all the things are ridiculous. The, the Nation of Domination, I think, is what mm, they were called. Mm-hmm, anyway, mm-hmm. so he kind of becomes a heel, right? So he's like the, the bad guy, the one that people are booing for and stuff. But then just kind of over the years through his just charisma and personality ends I mean, up... You're just that smile, right? I mean, how can you boo that smile? That smile right? He's a good looking guy. He doesn't yeah. smile as much earlier on i think that kind of became his deal later uh but he gets like voted like number one he ended up being some people consider him to be the best professional wrestler of all time whoa uh just because of his character and his charisma and his commitment to it and whatever and i wanted to play for you a, a clip here this is from 2002 where the rock is talking he's on an interview, calling out The Undertaker, who is another one of these very, very long-running characters in pro wrestling. The Undertaker, apparently, in a previous match of The Rock's, The Undertaker came in and messed with the match and screwed it up so that The Rock lost on a technicality. Oh, no. Yeah. And The Rock is not happy about this. And so he is now challenging The Undertaker. And 
what I love about this is that I didn't realize this. This is a thing of his, that The Rock never refers to himself with the personal pronoun I. He always refers to himself as the, the Rock. rock. <laughs> that's the most Yahweh thing ever. That right? is. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we cast so this so well. So well. So well. So well. So let me just let me just hit you with this. This is the part that I picked out for you because it's so Yahweh. So here it is. This is that's from this 2002 so Raven, Yahweh? interview. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and just to paint a picture for you, this is 2002. He's wearing a tank top that says in like American flag print. Just bring it, is what it says on his shirt. <laughs> so, cool. and he's got tiny, tiny little sunglasses on. So that's kind of the vibe we're going for. Very much like the sunglasses that Morpheus wears yes, in the Matrix. Yeah, yeah. Kind yeah, of, yeah. that yeah. kind of a deal. Is that why Undertaker? Undertaker, will you get something straight right here, right now? You see, The Rock does not answer to you. You see, Undertaker, The Rock is not the Undertaker's champion. No, 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 no. The Rock is the people's champion. Hallelujah. Yes. Right? Hallelujah. But you see, Undertaker leaves The Rock with two choices. What The Rock could do right now <laughs> is he could go out and he could prepare for his match, his tag match tonight, after The Rock sings a verse of his favorite song called Viva Rock Vegas. His favorite song. <laughs> Viva or Rock Undertaker, Vegas. If it were up to you, what The Rock could do. It's simply not do that, not entertain, not electrify. What The Rock does best, entertain, electrify the millions and millions of The Rock's fans. So if it's up to you, Undertaker, The Rock could just walk away right now. No. <laughs> wow. He just is, he's amazing. A national treasure, truly. Oh, well, that's great. Well, last truly. week was drunk menstrual study. This week was drunk rock study. Truly like the Genki Sudo of America. Am I right? Yes. Am I right? For the two listeners who got that reference, For, I agree. I know, who know who that is. <laughs> I'm like, uh... Gen- yeah, Genki Sudo was also like a pro wrestler in Japan, oh. though. Or he was, was, was he an MMA, MMA fighter? Yeah, pro okay. MMA fighter. Okay. And he also, I, I, th- I feel like it's a similar arc to The Rock, almost, where mm. also very good at the showmanship, very attractive. He started getting to a point of his entrances to his matches, getting more and more elaborate with like elaborate song and dance numbers and elaborate <laughs> costumes and stuff like that. And then Amazing. basically the way the story goes is he was like, I'd rather be doing that than wrestling. And so he... <laughs> Became a dancer. And he became this like electronic beca- music star. Yeah, oh he became gosh. this yeah electronic music star and dancer. And World Order is a band, a Japanese band that a lot of people have probably seen their stuff, but they just don't know that that's who it is. But like you have to look up their videos. If you look up World Order Japan, like they do a lot of this really intense, very synchronized dancing of all these Japanese men just in these business suits. Yeah, and like and, black suits um, with white shirts and black that ties. Awesome. It's, it's so really cool. cool. So cool. And wow. yeah, really, really cool. So if you want even more delights, go look up Genki Sudo. Yeah, for sure. Later in this interview, The Rock ends up singing. He sings Viva oh, Las Vegas, but as Viva Rock Vegas. Oh my God. Like, there's a whole, it's it's fantastic. Oh my definitely, gosh. definitely worth checking out some old videos on YouTube. It's pretty incredible. Oh my goodness. Wow, he's, he's come a long yep. way. And I'd say he's passed his audition for being Yahweh. I mean. Oh, please. It, was, it was an oh, offer. He, we yeah. weren't going to need to audition him. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. just a straight That's offer. Great. Yeah. All righty. Well, that was uh, pretty incredible, as always. And we hope to see you next week for more Isaiah. Who knows what we have in store, what Isaiah has in store for us. (laughs) I can't wait. And we will see you next time.